Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the first Tuesday of the month, which means it's time for Straight Talk with Dr. Doug Lyle, where he answers your questions if you send them in to us in advance. Please welcome Dr. Doug Lyle. This is a favorite day of the month for so many people. Oh, cool, AJ. Great to be here. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Lyle, I was talking to Dr. Jessica Krant, who also has a monthly show. She's a plant-based dermatologist. And we have a lot of wonderful doctors on this show, but for some reason, you two get the most questions. And we were trying to figure out why. Is it because everybody has skin and everybody has, you know, a mind? (laughs) Who knows, you know, uh, or they're, they're, we may be in, in niches that other people aren't talking about. That's yeah. probably what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, even if no more questions were sent in, we've got enough for you guys. And it's interesting the questions that come from you, for the most part, these people are, they're very thoughtful questions. And I'm like, book a session because I mean, they're, they're, they're good questions. You know, they're really, they're not just saying like, well, actually, one is, what do you think of intermittent fasting? But for yeah. the most part, these people are putting thought into the questions. Right. Right. All which we appreciate. Yeah. Well, first question is really easy. It's from Carol, and she's a member of your Living Wisdom Library. If you want to talk about what that is, you can. Uh, and she wants to know, when will the replays be up? Because there's none up since like over a month ago. Yeah, that that's strange. Uh, I'm going to have to uh, t- talk to Jen Hawk and find out what's going on. I mean, the um, yeah, we would have done, we do two a month. And so uh, I know we did one last week. So I can't remember... Uh, uh, so I, I'm not really sure what's going on, but the Living Wisdom Library is a, it, it's a, uh, the place on, you know, if, if you go to Esteem Dynamics, you have a bunch of stuff on there, you know, all the videos that I ever did and seminars that I did for the McDougal program, et cetera, those are all on there free. And then the Living Wisdom Library is the, the subscription part of the site where there's a bunch of specialized lectures that both Jen and I have done. Um on really on evolutionary psychology and and personality, and so it's uh, it, it doesn't have as much to do with the health issues that are really prominent on the on the first part of the site, which is stuff that everybody that you know everything I've done for the last twenty years is really on that on the front part of the site that's free. But the Living Wisdom Library is also where we Jen and I do uh, twice a month. We do a uh, a Q and A this video like this where we take questions uh, from people about about anything. So this is where, uh, and because it's not particularly health oriented, it's really mostly about relationships, uh, your your children, you know, husband, wife, you know, the the the, the boyfriend that won't commit, um, you know, my 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 uh, my mother in law who's a who's a hoarder. What am I supposed to do about this? In other words, it's about all the rest of life. Uh, outside of health and some health things, but it's mostly uh, about other things. So the, uh, yeah, anyway, so it, it should be there. And so I'm glad to hear because I don't check on it. You know, I'm, as AJ would say, I'm just a talent, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you're just the star. You don't deal with any of that. Yeah, I don't deal with these things. So, so I will, I'll ask Jen and figure out what's going on. But yeah, there should be, uh, I don't know about whether we're missing two, maybe, but uh, but certainly we're missing one that was done last week. So uh, yeah, I'll check in and find out what's going on. 
Thank you. And I'll put a link to the Living Wisdom Library if you want to join. It's very, very affordable. So speaking of relationships, this first question from Renee is about why somebody would marry someone less attractive. Dr. Lyle, are you familiar with a song from 1963 from Jimmy Soul? It goes, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. And from my personal point of view, find an ugly girl to marry you. Is that true? Because this question says, Dr. Lyle, could you please elaborate on the mating concept, the magic 10%? Mm -hmm. I understand women would be willing to trade down in exchange for resources or wealth, but men who have wives much less attractive than them really puzzle me. If men don't need provisioning, why would a man be willing to trade down in the looks department? And I have seen many such examples around me. Um, yeah. I would say there was several things I would have to say about that. Um, first of all, to, to begin, people's uh, attractiveness is has a non-trivial component of subjectivity to it. So uh, it has both objectivity and subjectivity in the same way that art does. Now, it's not as wild as art. I'll swear I'll see people in some you know, in some modern art museum staring at something, pretending like they love it. It's like, no, you don't. That's a bunch of cardboard boxes with red tags on it. You know what I mean? Who, who are, you, are you kidding? But if you look at a couple of paintings by, you know, so one of them, one is an impressionist and one's a realist and, and they're, it's, it's both of a garden, somebody can much prefer that impressionist to the realist or vice versa. Um, and so, and it would be true, and you can find out that it's true because they'll shell out their money uh, to to an un, un, unknown artist, and not trying to ever think about about making money on it or showing off to their friends. They want to hang it in their living room. So we can see that we understand intuitively that there is subjectivity in beauty. That's why some people, um, when, when, whenever AJ buys a new house, which seems to happen every couple of years. <laughs> And that's only happened twice in my life, but okay. <laughs> well, what I get to hear about is, you know, all the little details of the decorations. Okay. Yeah. And so this is, this is the nature of subjectivity right there. You, you, you know, like I visited her house. It's beautiful, but she might be thinking, yeah, it could have been a little bit more beautiful if we had a little slightly different tone on the tile here or whatever. In other words, so if we put that different tone in, I, I probably wouldn't have thought it made any difference, but she might consider it 5% nicer. So that we, we know that there's subjectivity in beauty. So that's why it's not a fact when you say, well, I've seen many examples of men trading down, um, not necessarily in, not in their eyes. So they didn't necessarily trade down in their eyes, it, just in your eyes, you thought that he was an eight and she was a seven. But the truth of the matter is that's not what was going on inside of his head. So I like to say that there is, um, there's about a 10% slop in the system. Uh, that's been my, my number. The, uh, like, just to let, let you know, there's no research on this. There could be, uh, somebody could actually go after uh, these concepts that, that I have developed and they could quantify them because you, you, can, you can establish the truth of them pretty easily. Uh, we know 
there is considerable objectivity in beauty. In other words, nobody looks at a, a Miss America contestant and says, oh, she's average. Like nobody says that. Nobody even says, well, she's above average, but nothing special. Nobody says that either. In other words, everybody knows that all the young ladies that are on that stage, they're all in the top half of, you know, they're, they're in the top three or four percentile. In fact, if we looked at them and we had a bunch of judges, we would find that any group of 100 judges judging each one of those women relative to a whole array of 100 women that were distributed throughout the population, every single one of those judges would put every single one of those women in the top three or four of any of any random group of 100. So those young ladies are all in the top two percentile. Okay. But somebody wins. It's like, how? Well, take your pick because sometimes Miss Iowa, who I thought was the most attractive one, I watched these things when I was a kid. It'd be like, oh no, she's gone. She didn't even make the top 10. It's like, how did they do that? That's an outrage. <laughs> that's what Miss Iowa is thinking. Okay. So yeah, that's what her mother's thinking. That's for sure. So anyway, so first of all, we have to understand there's some significant uh, non-trivial degree of subjectivity. All right, but there is a degree of objectivity. And we know that sometimes people know in relationships where that's at, uh, because it turns out that if you look at, by photography, judges judging men to be more attractive than their wives, uh, and then you actually go in and interview them about how much energy they are putting into the children, uh, child raising processes, you know, changing their leaky underwear and helping them brush their teeth and all that sort of thing. It turns out that men that are uh, objectively more attractive than their wives do vastly less childcare than men who are not, uh, uh, who are, excuse me, men that are more attractive than their wives. The, uh, do vastly less childcare than men who are less attractive than their wives, quite a bit, okay? So we now we see one of the answers that will come in from this, which is that why would some man be willing to trade down? Answer, lazy. No, que no question about that. And um, you, you will find uh, occasionally good-looking men willing to trade down because they're not very ambitious. And that gal <clears throat> hustles, has a good job, <clears throat> is willing to, you know, has a lot of energy and she inherently feels over rewarded. She knows darn well that she is sleeping up and she is essentially making up for the trade by provisioning him. So that is not common. Uh, I mean, you will you will see evidence of it in your lifetime. There's no question you will run into it, but it's not the typical pattern for humans uh, because the typical pattern for humans has been for males to protect and provide for females during their vulnerability in pregnancy and the early development of children. And so as a result, the actual standard uh, pattern of, of human action is for the, the, the women to be willing to trade down a bit in order to get somebody who is feels over-rewarded and is hustling and, and uh, looking to put out effort to protect and provide for them. So that is the, the most standard um, <clears throat> pattern that you see, but you won't see it exclusively. And when you see the lazy male pattern, 
I'll tell you what, whenever I see it, it uh, I've seen it a few times in my career clinically, all the way down through the complaints about how lazy they are. And I have to tell you, there's a certain level of disgust uh, that comes from me. And I, it's probably not just from, from me, you know what I mean? Probably the world also has a certain disdain. Uh, there's something about being a man that you're supposed to hustle. You're supposed to hustle and do as well as you can. And if you're, quote, willing to settle and then be lazy, well, I don't know. There's just something not very admirable about that. But, uh, uh, but, the, but the human desire to, to get a exceptionally good deal in the looks department is a, you know, you'll, you'll hear it blamed on modern media and everything else under the sun. That's not true. This is a human universal. And uh, we can see the dramatic evidence of it uh, out of, out of uh, dating sites. So on a typical dating site, the average man is writing to a woman who is 25% more attractive than he is. That is the, that is the typical, uh, that is what it, that's who he is targeting his efforts at, which is extraordinary, which is why he rarely gets, he rarely gets a letter back. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is how it goes. So this shows you how, how tough these negotiations are and why in a country where you have incredible ability to contact uh, uh, partners all over the place and learn all about them and see whether or not they would be similar to you and beliefs and, and achievement and all that kind of stuff and, and desires and music. Despite all of that, you've got a massive number of single people in the United States. In fact, you have 50 million of the 330 million people in the United States are on dating apps. That's incredible. Okay. So that, that's who's actively on those, you know, on those apps at any given time. Forget about how many single people you have. You have over hundred million single people, uh, which shows you it is not easy for people to make these deals. They are inherently difficult to negotiate with, and um, that's because find, finding a mate, finding a partner, is not an easy thing to do, and that's why we we celebrate it so significantly when you when you finally get somebody that's really good. That's why that works that way. Dr. Lyle, this is generating a lot of questions, and one of them I've been hesitant to ask because I, anytime you mention weight, people think you're fat shaming, but somebody's inquiring, like there's a show called My 600 Pound Life, and very often these, these individuals are often bedridden and morbidly obese. Their mate is like of normal weight, and people are saying, did they sometimes do that because they know the person will then never leave? Is that the same idea behind marrying somebody less attractive because she's not going to get a better deal? Um, that could be probably what you have there. We, we have no idea what goes on in each and every one of those situations. So um, you, could, you could have very agreeable people that are, uh, that are essentially get into a relationship where, um, where, it, you know, where early in the game, the person wasn't that overweight. And then it, it, uh, they became really good friends. And then the agreeable person can't get themselves to leave. Uh, that's, that's a very standard uh, thing. I, I've seen that happen uh, in my practice. Um, uh, strangely enough, uh, you can also find a situation where the relationship never had any sexual dynamics because um, the, the male might've been gay. And so uh, they, were, they were actually good friends and it had something that, 
that looked to the outside world like a romantic dynamic, but it never really was, okay? And so uh, this can go all the way to marriage. And so there's no heavy incentive for the male to leave because he's sort of undercover. He's kind of in the closet and he doesn't even want to explore his sexuality because he's he's got too much you know, cultural force against him. And so he's just sort of hiding out uh, in, in a quote, marriage or relationship with a female that he never, you know, that didn't have any, no sexual esteem there or never was anyway. So that's another reason that, that I have seen uh, in my career. So the, uh, so there could be multiple reasons uh, for this. The, but anyway, the, the uh, I'm trying to think, but no, I don't think it's going to be typical that it would be a male thinking, oh, well, gee, this is going to be someone who nobody else is going to want. So therefore I'm safe. Maybe in a rare instance, but the, the, that's not, uh, people don't make their mating decisions based on that. Uh, they make their mating decisions. Uh, they're not usually making mating decisions along those lines. You will sometimes see females make mating decisions walking away from opportunities uh, with, with men that they consider a little too sexy because they feel like the men will not be stable and they won't stay with them, okay? But that's different because a female has the inherent vulnerability of being you know, pregnant and then having children and needing to be provisioned. And they can sniff that if this is a little too good a deal, then it's it's kind of it's kind of like a timeshare. It's like, oh, this sounds a little too good. I think I'm gonna get into trouble here. And that, you know, surprisingly, you typically won't see females defend themselves from this, but occasionally you will see women defend themselves from that and they can articulate that that's the reason. But uh, I, I have never heard of a man saying, I traded down and hung with someone who was obese so that I knew that she would never leave me. I, I've, I'm now 63 years old and I've been doing clinical psychology for 40 years and I have never once heard that articulated. <laughs> what is the magic 10% that, the, uh, that Renee was talking about in her question? Yeah, the magic 10% has to do with, um, uh, as I was explaining earlier, it's what I call the subjectivity and the objectivity. So. Uh, let's suppose that to uh, imagine a young lady that we consider to be an eight. So she's 32 years old and she's nice looking. And uh, I, I, me and my, uh, I've got four, uh, four guy friends and this, this gal's our waitress. Okay. And so, and, and so all of us would immediately recognize that she's above average. So now being the nerdy, you know, sort of useless males we are, we, we decide to check each other's brains for our analysis of her attractiveness. <laughs> okay. So let's suppose that I say, well, I rate that as an eight. And when we, we want to know what those numbers are, those are percentile markings for deciles. So an eight is an 80th percentile, a nine is a 90th percentile, and a 10 is a 99th percentile. Okay. So, or a five is a 50th percentile. That's average. So I say, okay, I think she's an eight. And my friend next to me says, yeah, I think she's an eight. And then two, two seats down, my other friend says, no, I think she's only a seven. Interesting. Okay. And then another friend says, no, I think she's a nine. And we look at him and we're like, huh. And he's like, can't wait for her to come back and 
bring his orange juice, okay? And then the other friend on the far end says, oh, I think she's an eight. And so what do we got? Out of an individual, uh, a quote, objectively, if we were to add up all five scores and divide by five, she's an eight. But it turns out for three of us, she's an eight, but one of us, she's a seven, and one of us, she's a nine. Okay, so keep that in mind. That's nobody thinks she's a 10 and nobody thinks she's a six. So that's telling us that there's a significant amount of objectivity in our attractiveness, but there's also some very interesting subjectivity in that attractiveness. So we are not all in 100% agreement. Now, the, um, so now, it, now we're going to have five uh, ladies look at, uh, uh, look at a guy and they have the very same process going on. So three of them think he's an eight, one of them thinks he, he's a seven, and the other one thinks he's a nine. Okay, so now let's suppose that this young man and this young lady meet. Now inside their own heads, they know that they are each quote an eight, because that's the typical feedback that they've gotten through the history of their life. It's just how people have treated them. Uh, and so they, you know, they don't have a little score in their head, but they, they essentially do. Their, their brain is sophisticated enough to know. We know that's true because, my God, when those men write to women on match, they're, they write to 25 percentile higher than themselves. So it's fascinating that, you know, they may overrate themselves. But let's just say in principle that, that we wind up with two eights meeting. Well, if two eights meet and typically there shouldn't be any particular interest because it's like, what do I need an eight for? I, I should be able to get an eight any time. I'm an eight, okay? What I want is a nine. Well, the one, once one out of five times, the guy, in this case, the eight, looks at that gal and says, wow, that's a nine. But the gal herself thinks of herself as an eight because that's her most typical feedback. And that gal looks at him and she says, huh, seven. And it's like, oops, she's not interested. It's he's 20 percentile, you know, he's he's 10 percentile too low. She's like, no, nah, that's really not worth it. I'm not too interested. And he chases her and, and he, she, he's, she's not that interested. But once in a while, when those two eights meet, um, the guy looks at the gal and says, hey, that's a nine. And she looks at him and says, hey, that's a nine. So two eights are staring at an eight. Each, each of them is staring at as an eight, but they think of the other one as a nine. So now they're both really motivated and excited. They're like, I can't believe this nine thinks I'm a nine. I, I can't believe they're into me. It's, quote, too good to be true. Okay, I've, I've seen that happen. And uh, I, I was... You know, I saw two, two people and met them on their honeymoon, and I figured that the gal was an eight and a half, and I thought the guy was 10. I felt like a movie star to me. But I could also tell by talking to these young people, he was super affable, and he had no arrogance at all to himself in his looks. None. It was actually interesting. And I could tell that she felt like he was really fancy, which I felt like he was. But he thought, you know, she was very fit and he was, he wasn't that athletic and he thought she was really something special. And they, that was magic 10. There was, and they were, that was a very happy couple. I, 
know, I'd like to check in with them 10 years later and see where they're at, but they, they, they looked remarkably glowing. Okay. And they weren't spring chickens either. They were in their thirties. So they, they had been around and they certainly had plenty of dating experience. And they told me the story about how they met and then they, how remarkable the whole thing was, i.e. that's what love is. You know, love, the excitement, we could talk about different features of what love is, but the feature that we're so fascinated with maybe is the early extraordinary excitement. And if we think about what on earth is excitement, what would excitement be? How, why would it be uh, endemic to animals to, to be excited? And the answer is when they get a particularly good deal. So my cat, if I shake the little treat box, she comes running. <laughs> it's a really good deal. It's fancier. It's got higher calorie density than the normal food that she gets. So she's excited because it's a very, very good biological acquisition. And that's what falling in love is. Falling in love is the feeling of high motivation to secure a resource that we deem to be highly valuable. That's what it is. So it's a generalized feeling that has uh, very specific, you know, has specific perfect uh, neural circuits in and around mating and connection and all that sort of thing. But the excitement that you see generated is because of the inference that this is a particularly excellent opportunity. That's what that is. So that is the magic 10%. And we spend our lives, many of us looking for it. Sometimes finding it, sometimes not. <laughs> Right. All right. Oh, this is this is so interesting. And, 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 and the next question is also about a, a certain level of attractiveness. This is from a man whose first name is Lyle. He says, I'm a successful 32 year old male who is very stable emotionally and financially. And I've been told that I'm a real catch. I'm six foot two with a muscular physique. And most people consider me a solid nine. An attractive woman recently transferred to my department and has made it very clear that she's interested in me. She's even talked to some of my coworkers inquiring why I don't make a move if I'm single, eligible, and looking. I would normally be very interested in her except for one thing that I can't get past and for me is a deal breaker. She has a nose ring. I don't mean one of those tiny diamonds on the side of a nostril that you often see on an Indian woman. I mean an actual thick metal ring like you'd see on a bull. It's hideous. Should I tell her to ditch the ring and then I'll ask her out? or just tell her that is the reason that I'm not asking her out. I'm curious, Dr. Lyle, why an otherwise attractive female would desecrate their body with things like nose rings and tattoos. And I can't believe any worthy male would actually find these accoutrements attractive. Super interesting. Yeah. Um, great question. First of all, whatever this guy is, I don't like him. 32 years old, 62, muscular, everybody's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> so right away we're irritated. <laughs> now, so what you're what you're actually seeing is, um, uh, yeah, you're, you're, what the young lady is doing is she's actually signaling openness. So this is a advertisement of her big five profile, and so the um, and so you're interestingly enough you're your disgust for that is important for us to note because um, you're, we're seeing that th this may or may not be a very global um, 
Rorschach test for you, but it might be. So uh, we don't know. It could be that you are not very open. <clears throat> now, people, people don't like to hear that they're not open uh, because it's as if open is a great thing and, and closed is not a great thing. That's not true. The, uh, this is, these are bell curves in evolution and the, the middle of the bell curve is, the, uh, is by definition, that is the optimal genotype for the species. So openness, um, and openness is inherently really interesting because people that are really open have explored parts of the world and survived. And they may have actually have interesting information for us because they have survived. So the um, so they can be interesting. However, we may not want to hang with them and do things with them because we've heard of three harrowing experiences where they damn near died because of their poor judgment of the crap that they got into. So we're interested in hearing, you know, what an opium damn looks like and what are people are actually doing in there. But we don't want to go with them, and we can't believe that they're going to go to some place like that again. So um, closed people, meanwhile are extremely, uh, can be very safe. So it depends upon who it is that, you know, what your circumstances are, um, uh, wh whether or not, what, what it is that we are preferring at that instant. However, the, when it comes to mating, we, are, we generally want people that are not too far away from us. Um, you know, they, they might, I, I would say, for example, again, nobody in the world has data on this, but but uh, my eyeball estimates on these things tend to be pretty good. And so uh, I believe that, that people are get uncomfortable if their uh, partners are more than about 20 percentile different than they are in any given dimension. So you can think about, uh, I know Charles and AJ, they are both very conscientious, okay? So the AJs might be a little bit more conscientious than Charles. AJ's I bet not. I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. However, it's interesting that a lot of things about them are reasonably close. Okay, so they're they are uh, they're they're neither one of they're not wacky open people. They are moderately interesting. So both of them worked in Hollywood. Okay, that's kind of an interesting thing that is true. Um, but when it comes to their tastes on things, remarkably similar. So they don't they don't want to have swirling purple tie dye curtains in their house. They don't like that. They're, they're, they're not like that. They're, uh, and neither do they want, you know, French, you know, 17th century Louis XIV furniture. No, they don't like that either. Okay, so you, you're, we, we see probably tastes in music. Uh, all kinds of things will signal how different or similar you are to somebody. And whether someone has tattoo and nose rings is actually, whether you have them or not, your reaction to those things is a is is partially a indicative of your own natural openness. So you might be, for example, the questioner might be 50th percentile open, and this young lady's signals are actually signaling 80 plus percentile, and that difference is disturbing. And you're thinking, gee, if only you had a little tiny, if you just had one of those little stud diamonds in your nose. That would be just enough openness to be exciting. But if you put a ring through your nose, now you've gone over the line. Okay. And so now, now I'm no longer comfortable with you. And so uh, similar 
types of things. Uh, I, I, I've hung out with people across my life that, for example, in, in talking to them, you know, if you ever talk to somebody who is inherently kind of loud or might have a very loud laugh, okay? And it's like, gosh, that's just a little too loud. <laughs> I can remember being on a date with a gal who she was, her, her voice and the strength of the voice was just, you know, 25% too forceful. It's like, this is just too inherently masculine, dominant, loud, whatever it is. It's like, no, it, it, it's not, it's outside my preference range. And this is like seasoning for your veggie burrito. Like for me, don't put cilantro on it. I don't like it. Somebody else loves the cilantro. Okay, so these are these subtle, natural individual differences. So when it comes to this lady, young lady, um, you know, she's interested. She, you're handsome. You're, you're similar socioeconomic status working in the same place. Uh, you both are very attractive people. It wouldn't be surprising that two very attractive people might find each other appealing. The, um, uh, the magic 10% is not as tricky for people that are in the top 90th percentile because there isn't anybody 10% uh, more attractive than they are. So if you happen to be a 95th percentile attractive person, it's not difficult at all to find people that you find attractive that are attracted to you. So the top 10% of humanity lives in their own enclave that the rest of us we are aware that that's true, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, and so you live in that enclave and so it is probably this young lady living that enclave. So she's like, why wouldn't any guy be interested in me? They all seem like they are. And, and you're looking at her and you're like thinking, well, everything about you, your femininity and your attractiveness and the way you move and the way you do your hair, that's all fine, but you're a little too open. And that openness strikes me as revolting because that's too dangerous and too wild and too basically, you know, uh, it, it, it starts speaking to low conscientiousness, even though it's not, it's actually a different dimension. It's higher risk-taking is what this is. And it's a more garish advertisement of, of someone's personality. And it's like, no, that's a rollout. Now, here's the thing. This is what I would have you do. I would actually have you, uh, if you if you would quote otherwise be interested, um, then I would I would ask her out to lunch, okay. And what you're going to do is you're going to see whether or not you find out that her personality actually is too open. Um, and you, if it is, then it is. Then it turns out that effectively you've ruled her out for anything other than casual mating strategy. In other words. You got your, your intuition that her advertisement is telling you that she's not right for you may be confirmed by a, an, an hour lunch date on a Saturday, okay? So, however, it turns out that that hour lunch date on a Saturday, you might find out that she's only a little bit more open than you, that she's really not that open, and that this was a stylistic advertisement of a millennial. And so, as a result... It's like, you're really interested, but now we've got the problem that you're talking about. So you're thinking one step too quickly. Uh, uh, you may find out that you habituate to that crazy nose ring and you don't even think about it uh, after, after you're, you're focused in on the rest of who this person is 
you may see right past it, or you may say to her, you know, on, on date three, you know, I just have to tell you that ministering drives me crazy. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. That, at that point, it's fair. But to, to uh, what you're thinking about is having her get rid of it early. That doesn't make any sense. So uh, go have an hour and find out whether in that hour, you're, uh, one of the two of you rules the other one out anyway. And then, then we see what happens. That is so interesting how you answered that and how these are functions of, of a personality trait of openness. That is so interesting. But you you don't advise in general that people tell people what they don't like about somebody, right? Yeah, uh, no, not at all. There, there's no reason, in other words, but here's the issue. So the, why wouldn't, why would I not do that? The answer is my reactions to somebody are my subjective assessment. It's got nothing to do with the rest of the market. So the gal that that talked loud, incidentally, we went to a performance and she clapped loud, way loud. <laughs> the whole thing was just a little off. You know, I mean, I I felt like I felt like this gal had more testosterone than I did. The uh, she didn't look like it, but but the the behavior was like that. This is no fault of hers. This is no. This is no flaw. This is just who it is, where her personality lands on the bell curve. You don't change that. These are innate neural circuits that are not subject to modification. And so you could reel it in if you had to meet the Queen of England and they told you, okay, listen, when the performance comes from the little uh, viola player, don't like, don't do, don't clap like that. Clap politely like the Queen, okay? Yeah, you could reel it in, but that's just one aspect of where that was coming out in that girl's personality. It was coming out in all kinds of things. It's coming out in, you know, the elbow at her soup and talking to the waitress, <laughs> ordering the waitress, whatever. I don't even remember the whole thing. It's 20 years ago. But the point of this is that, that um, so we're not going to give people feedback unless it turns out that it's something like this. That's like, wait a minute. There's actually something specific about your, 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 your dress, your hair, your makeup, your this or that, that, that actually is distracting and disturbing for me, but who you are, all of the rest of it qualifies for God's sakes. And so now, you know, now if you could change this for, for me, it would, I bet I'd be a lot happier. Okay. Now, now, now we have a cost benefit on the other side. If you're the on the other side of that, that's super worth considering. Okay, so that, in other words, I would want to know. Gee, if I if I would just wear you know red shirts, then then you know, well, I don't know. Karen would be interested in me or something. You know what I mean, or whatever. Or if I wore my hair longer or some damn thing. In other words, then it'd be like, well. You know, since I think Karen is really great, you better believe I'd be willing to wear my hair longer. Yeah, that's fine. But I wouldn't want Karen giving me feedback before she even knows me that say, gee, you know, if you just had your hair longer, I'd be interested in dating you. It's like, no, no, I'm not interested in that kind of conversation. We have to find out whether or not there's any natural chemistry between these two personalities. And then we can start nitpicking around these things around the edges. So that's that's how we would look at that. 
Yeah. So not that this girl would ever ask him, but if she said, why don't you ask me out? He shouldn't, that's not like a little intro and to say that, or like, for example, like I, not that I would date, but I wouldn't go out with somebody that smoked. Like, are you ever allowed to say the why or just make something up? Oh yeah. AJ, by the way, AJ and I have been down this road. (laughs) (laughs) I just like to tell the truth. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got a little, that's, that's your hyper-conscientious chip just runs 24-7 HA and it's way up there in the top one percentile. That's why Charles, who is a very conscientious guy, you know, causes you frustration because you're sitting out there at 99.9 looking at everybody else like, how come you don't that's differently? I'll tell you the truth. This is what's wrong. So no, I, I understand. No, the truth of the matter is that that there's there's no particular profit in giving people our subjective sort of rejecting you know assessment of them at all unless it is a it is essentially a critical issue that that you know makes the difference on whether the relationship even exists and that we could be leaving something important on the table. So in this case if she says, why don't you ask me out? The answer should be, oh, you know, hadn't gotten around to it, but I, I, I was warming up to it. Yeah, he should ask her out uh, if he finds her uh, otherwise interesting and then go find out, you know, what you really have. So make an assessment first. This is kind of like, uh, oh, it's kind of like buying a house and, and you're, you're, you know, it, you know, it's sort of like you're, you're interested in the, in the water, in the well, you know what I mean? So how, how many gallons per minute? It's like, well, first, before, before we make a big assessment of the, of the well, let's at least go check out the house to see if we like it. Let's find out about all that first. Now let's go inside, look at the whole thing, and then we can come out and talk about the well. Yeah. Nice. You know, I had a guy in University of Pennsylvania once said, I'd ask you out if you weren't so fat. How do you respond to that? You know? That's just that, that is an amazing that that's you know it's funny in this lifetime uh, most of us will probably have a few instances where we've been uh, extraordinarily insulted by somebody that didn't have any social skill or social grace or judgment and so that's going to happen to us and um, uh, the. Yeah, I can remember a young lady and I were talking about our noses because I've got a big nose and she had a big nose and we were good friends. And and so she was actually quite an attractive uh, uh, gal. And so we were I, I can't I can't remember the, the backdrop of this conversation. The uh, But she said we were talking about having been insulted, you know, uh, sometimes accidentally by people, but sometimes um substantively you know to the point where and she said uh some some guys said what would you rather have would you rather have oh i don't know something like a 20 dollar gold piece or her nose full of pennies you know that somebody had said that and we were having this conversation and that had happened you know 15 years earlier when she was a, a younger adult, and this had happened at some party or something. Wow, what what an inc- 
incredibly bad judgment, cruel, just macabre, awful thing to ever have said. And so that her nervous system, you know, has that, you know, no wonder people believe in trauma theory, you know, like you never forget anything like that. It didn't wreck her life, but it's a little nasty memory that, that sits in the scoreboard. It's not like it's operating day to day at all, but when we were talking about this, uh, we were sort of talking this thing through, boy, that memory went right to that incident, um, you know, be, because you you fear that whenever you hear an insult, there's a hundred insults just like it that you didn't hear because the people had enough judgment not to say. And so that, I don't think that's probably true, but there may be five, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, but the point is it, it was a disturbing thing. So yeah, I'm not surprised that some some completely poor judgment, half Asperger's human, you know, mouthed off like that, AJ. I mean, it's an incredible thing to say to anybody. The, uh, but humanity, you know what I mean? They're, they're, they, they are what they are. And that, that's why, uh, uh, that, that's why uh, you and I have had a conversation more than once uh, with your very high conscientiousness. I told you, don't be reading a bunch of commentary uh, about you and your performances in social media. Don't do it. And I'll tell a lot of people that. I've given many people that advice. Uh, people that have, you know, don't don't look at it. So I, uh, oh, probably the last time I looked at any commentary about the pleasure trap was about three or four years ago. And somehow, I don't know, came across my thing and I started reading and I'm reading down through all these glowing things and I'm all happy and I'm all happy and I'm all happy to get 19 in a row and then I get the critic. And, you know, then, then finally get the critical feedback and it's like, okay, and they were misrepresenting my position. They think they had a point. They weren't being dishonest. They were just being nasty and they were wrong. And, um, and you know, then, then I got to think about that, you know, multiple times for the next 48 hours. It's like, yeah, forget it. That's why, uh, that's why we don't need to be giving people negative feedback and we want to shield ourselves from as much of it as possible. And uh, the only time when I'm going to give somebody quote, constructive criticism, there better be damn good reason why I'm doing it. Okay. So yeah, date three with this gal, you're really into her. She's really into you. Now you can talk about the nose ring. Great. Thanks, Dr. Lyle. Well, you had mentioned uh, childhood trauma, so we can't seem to have one show go by without a question about it. Right. So the question asker says, I once heard the author of Blueprint is he a doctor? She says, Dr. Yeah. Plum, yes. debate two other parenting experts who inevitably brought up the impact of childhood traumas in ACEs, which are adverse childhood events. Right. They cited research and their own clinical experiences saying parenting matters a great deal more than Dr. Plowman suggests. So why do we see so many parenting experts say that when only Dr. Plowman and Dr. Lyle suggest otherwise? Yeah, that's... Uh... That, that, that's, it, it, it's one of the, you know, it's, it's a great question and it's a, it, it will be one of the central bombshells in the book that Jen Hawk and I are writing. Uh, so the, it, it, it's one of the, uh, it, it, it's an extraordinary, uh, there, there's complexity to this that, that is, 
Uh, I would have to sort of develop too many different ideas at once to try to give you a comprehensive action. So you've sort of asked a physics professor, you know, wh why it is that, you know, a, a coin stays on the table instead of falling off the table. And he's going to start telling you about the space-time continuum and, and coefficients of kinetic friction and quantum physics and everything else under the sun. In other words, it gets complicated. The, um, but the people that think that, that when they're using their quote clinical experience, that is 100% useless because they don't have any idea why the person is having the problems that they're having in the present. So they, they have a theory that the reason was that it was related to childhood trauma, but they have no facts that that is true. And it would be impossible for them to establish that in any kind of a clinical context. It's not possible. So you can't know why somebody's a nervous wreck at 42 and you think it's because their, their, their mother was abusive to them when they were, they were nine years old. That there is absolutely no demonstrated causal connection there at all. But if you believe there's a causal connection, then of course, then you are convinced that it's true. But that's, that's not a legitimate way to determine the truth about anything. So the way that you would legitimately determine the truth about anything would be to properly investigate scientifically. And if these quote childhood experts, if they're clinicians, by the way, then they're not researchers. So I'm already, if anybody debated Plowman that was, was citing their own clinical experience, then I can tell you right now that they are not big time researchers because big time researchers are not clinicians. Okay. You are either a clinician or you're a researcher, you are not both. So if they were jumping, they were citing research done by other people. And so keep in mind, so what you were hearing debating Dr. Plumman, uh, Dr. Plumman is not a clinician. He, he's a scientist. He's a developmental psychologist. The developmental psychologists do not see clients. They don't do that. He is a professor. Uh, uh, he is trained to do the use the scientific method in order to explore the nature of child development. And he's one of the most decorated developmental psychologists in world history. So this is, this is the equivalent of some nutritionist telling you that, you know, ginseng, when I add it to my grapefruit, you know, that, that cures, and I've done it clinically with six people with ulcerative colitis, and they all got better. And you're talking to T. Colin Campbell on the other side, who says, actually, I've extensively reviewed the evidence on that, and there is absolutely no way that adding ginseng to your grapefruit is going to do anything to, to, to deal with ulcerative colitis. It's just not the way it is. And they're jumping up and down saying it is. Okay, and my clinical experience is like, well, your clinical experience doesn't add up to $17 million worth of investigations on, you know, 2,800 people and, and 15, you know, 15 different major investigations that all show that it wasn't true. So what do you mean your clinical experience? So whoever was debating them was not a scientist. They were citing science done by ACE researchers. ACE research is fraudulent, okay? So ACE, ACE research is very clever, very clever fraud. There's a lot of research like that. So you had a whole career of a guy at Cornell, speaking of Colin Campbell. There's with, a, seriously. There's a, sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. So you had a, uh, a researcher at Cornell that 
cooked up one bunch of bogus science after the next in the nutrition arena is very, very, quote, to, to pardon the pun, palatable. So in other words, the, the press would take it very quickly. Uh, actually, a lot of it was paid for by industry because it said a bunch of things that everybody sort of wanted to hear and were cool, okay? So we found out later after major investigation, he, you know, he was discredited, he was kicked out of the university, stuff was fraudulent, it was all just crap. Okay, so, but it played, it, it, he got all kinds of grants, he got all kinds of money, he got all kinds of press, you know, he was seen as a worldwide expert, very, very lucrative career that was built around fraud. That's what ACE research is, okay? So ACE research is being funded all the way through the World Health Organization, which itself is, is filled with fraud. The, um, so this is uh, the, the, this all started, the story of ACE research was, you know, a Kaiser, a bunch of people found out that, gee, you know, when we talked to these people that had all these problems, we, we interviewed them and it turned out, oh my gosh, they all had these childhood traumas. That's how we discovered the relationship. Oh, Jesus. That you are talking about, you rediscovered the same thing that Sigmund Freud was talking about 100 years ago, and you're all surprised and proud of yourself? Ludicrous. What you did not do was you did not actually prospectively study anything. You did not do the science properly at all. Okay. So it turns out that, you know, this is, this is sort of uh, grad school 101 in social science is that you have to know how to do the research properly. If you have a theory like this, uh, you can cook data easily all day long and always come up with a with BS answer any way you want, okay? But if you were to actually uh, study people and not let them know what the connection was, you wouldn't find it. And that's precisely what Bruce Ryan did. So Bruce Ryan at Temple University went and looked at 59 different studies, 59 different studies. Okay, 59, 35,000 abuse victims were studied by 59 different investigations. And they found no connection between the abuse and later any kind of problematic uh, issues with people in their adult lives. Extraordinary. Now that <clears throat> tells us the, uh, there's, and, so this is the kind of thing that Robert Plowman is talking about. So Robert Plowman is even talking much wider than Ryan data, than Bruce Ryan's data. The, when you look what, 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 what trauma will do to people is the, the, the purpose of having memories associated with trauma um, is to improve the functioning of the organism. That, that is the purpose of the changes in the brain. It's called learning. So when anything that happens to you that is significant, that is either significantly good or significantly bad, you learn it. The, there is, uh, the, uh, the brain can code for that information. It marks it as important. Okay, so it can mark all kinds of things as important. It, it has a vast library. Uh, it can, you, can, you can learn an incredible amount of things in a lifetime. And everything that you learn is altering your brain, uh, basically coagulating some information and synthesizing it into some neural circuitry for later use. It's not done for fun. It's done because it could be useful. The, uh, <clears throat> now, 
So when you have good things happen to you, it's very important that you remember them. So if you go to a place and they have really good acai bowls, don't forget where that's located. Don't forget what it was like. You, should, you need to remember that because that's a valuable resource and you need to be able to, to put it like, well, how good is it? As good as the other acai bowls at the other place? Yes, it's better and they're cheaper, even though we have to drive another mile. It's like, okay, now you can run the cost benefit analysis and improve your existence because you now have run, you now have new information about an opportunity in the environment. Well, that's also true for threats in the environment. So your brain is designed by nature to triage opportunities against threats. Uh, that's basically what the basic process is of the brain of an animal, is to triage or prioritize the probabilities of opportunities and the probability of threats. And therefore, essentially, it's resource management. So uh, we're trying to pursue pleasure and avoid pain and conserve energy. That's what we're trying to do in order to get the resources necessary for survival and reproduction. So when something bad happens that we've now got a word for that we call it trauma, okay? Um, get, kick that word out of your vocabulary so you can speak English and think clearly. Something bad happens. We have a negative experience which either threatens a resource of ours or took it. So the bully, you know, beat us up and, you know, and broke our nose and now our nose will never look the same and we're less attractive. That was a, he took a resource. We, we, we lost a resource as a result of that. Don't forget that. It would be very important for us to remember that, uh, that not only that can happen, in other words, if I get in altercations with people, they can damage me and maybe kill me, but also that specific individual where he lives that's also, so your brain is designed by nature to absolutely remember critical features of what took place under either the actual loss or something that was close. We had a near miss car accident because we tried to get off the freeway in the rain, you know what I mean? And we slid off of that thing and our car rolled and we didn't die, but we could have, could have just as easily been a 50 foot drop as, as the eight foot drop that it was. So when we, these are quote traumas, bad things that happen. And when bad things happen to animals, their brains record those bad things in a way that is meant to be retrieved and useful in future situations that are logically associated with what that loss or threat was. In other words, whether you lose or don't lose a resource, particularly if you lose the resource, your brain is designed to say, don't lose the lesson. Don't lose the lesson. Okay. This means we, we had an unfortunate experience which we might have been able to avoid. And therefore it is critical that we change our brains and update our probability estimates of that threat so that in the future we can do a better job of triaging our behavior to negotiate our way around a threat that we, we previously had underestimated. That is how the brain works. Okay? So it's going to turn out that traumatic events, which if we start talking about them, you can call them up in memory and we can consciously activate them 
and you can have significant emotional responses to them. But clinical psychologists, like the clinicians who were debating Dr. Plumman, they believe that that is latent feelings in there that are unbelievably impactful and they're causing the misery that you're experiencing in, in your relationships 25 years later. That's simply not true. That's not how trauma works. And it's not the lessons that trauma is trying to teach us. Okay, so trauma is trying to teach us exceedingly narrow lessons, not wide in general. Let me explain. Let's suppose that I had an auto accident. Or does that now make me afraid of going up on a, a, a little ladder in my kitchen to change a, a light bulb? Well, no, it's got nothing to do with it. Okay, it's still a danger going up on my ladder in the kitchen. You know, wh why am I not now all anxious and upset and because it makes me anxious and a nervous wreck forever? Well, of course it doesn't. Okay, it doesn't even make me a nervous wreck in the car. Now, it may make me kind of nervous going over bridges because I damn near went off a bridge. Okay, in other words, the system, if I get beat up by a bully, if I go into Safeway, I'm not worried about every man in there that's going to start tearing up and beating the hell out of me. No, that bully was 15 years ago. That was in an altercation in a basketball game. You see? So in other words, the system, in order to be efficient and effective, the, quote, trauma learning system would have to be ex exquisitely uh, narrow. It would need to be. That is why they found when child children are abused by their parents, it doesn't make them alcoholics later. It doesn't make them depressed later. It doesn't make them sexually confused later. It doesn't make them less likely to marry later. It doesn't make them more likely to lose their job later. It doesn't make them anything. Okay. It probably makes them more sensitive to taking their children around their parents who were abusive to them. And you're like, yeah, I'm not gonna leave my kid with my father, my father beat us up. He's mellowed out now, I've actually had that clinically. I've had that, that exact situation. Like, yeah, yeah, my father abused us, now he's mellowed out, I sort of can tolerate him. But no, I'm not leaving my kids around him. I don't trust him. There you go. That's what the trauma is for. That's the purpose of it. The purpose of it isn't to turn you into an alcoholic. That's not what that would do. ACE research is bogus. It is, it is uses post hoc research techniques that you cannot use. We know that this is true. Uh, every, every psychologist, uh, every social scientist that ever had a portion of research methods knows that you cannot use the research methods that ACE researchers use. They use bogus research. If you ask people, if you ask people, let me give you a great example, and this will be basically finish this up. So see, I did exactly what I said I couldn't do, AJ, which is to try to give you a definitive thing of universal physics to try to solve the problem of the, the dime on the table. Okay, but here's the thing. You, uh, in a classic research study that was done by Holmes and Ray, in the 19, in late 1960s. I think Holmes was a physician and Ray was somebody else. And they didn't know what they were doing. So this was a classic example of medical doctors trying to figure out the relationship between uh, stress and health. And so Holmes and Ray did a survey. So they asked people, you know, they had gotten, you know, that, that were, they've gotten sick this year. They said, hey, 
you know, did you, you know, did you have a really stressful year this year? You know, what things happened to you? You have a stress index. I mean, you know, and was this related? You think this was related to you getting sick? And so it turns out that under that context, oh yeah, people said, oh yeah, that's right. I got sick and oh my God, there was so much going on. Oh my God, my mother had this problem and then my cat died and oh my God, it was a stressful year. That's why I got sick. You can't do it that way. What you have to do is you have to have people writing down every month or every week or every day what stressful thing happened to you today and then rate, rate it, okay? All along the whole 365 days in a row. And then quietly, you're asking them other things like, oh, how's your car? You know, did you get your car washed? And oh, you know, did you have a cold, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, oh, did you ever stay home from work because you got sick or something? So very slyly, you measure what stressful things are happening in their life and whether they get sick. That's how you do it. The, the client can never know what you're measuring. If you tell them what you're measuring, they're going to find it in two seconds. Okay. You have to make damn sure they don't know. Guess what? There's no relationship between stress and getting sick. Basically, the correlation coefficient is almost zero. It's effectively zero. So it turns out, no, it's actually not related. You're getting sick, you know, has much more to do with whether you stood in the you know, you picked up something that somebody just sneezed on and then you rubbed your eyes and that's how you got sick. And it wasn't that your, your, your cat died last week and now you got sick. No, that isn't what it is. So the ACE research is all based on coaching people about this connection. And then they will wax endless about it and they will spew a bunch of reports that apparently support the theory, which is exactly what these two therapists are, do in their practice, which is why they were arguing so vehemently with Dr. Plumman. Those therapists didn't know any better. They didn't know that they were cueing this. They aren't trained in research, so they didn't know that they were sitting on, they didn't know that the ACE research was bogus. So as a result, these two supposed experts about childhood trauma and outcomes did, were, were talking to at one of the grand scientists of the 20th century. And he's just looking at them like, what am I doing? I mean, he's doing the good fight, trying to educate humanity. And it turns out that all they're doing is jumping up and down and saying, no, we, we put ginseng in our grapefruit and we solved it. And I was like, no, you didn't. And you didn't solve anything. So that is the, the nature uh, uh, of this whole thing. So Dr. Plowman is right. And if you read Blueprint, you will know that whoever it is that uh, is on the other side of this can't possibly contradict that research because that research represents an unbelievable edifice. This is like someone coming along and saying, nope, I've got the solution to health. And the solution to health is, you know, chicken gizzards. And if you just slice up a little bit of chicken gizzard and put it in your food, that's what's going to make you healthy. Everybody that's listening to this podcast knows that's not true. And how do you know that's not true? Because there's a massive amount of scientific evidence, not from one researcher, from a tremendous amount of researchers. 
We could even just cite one, just Colin Campbell and the years he spent in China with the massive China study research project. That alone would be enough to defeat that notion of the chicken gizzard. Okay. But we can't, we don't have to stop there. We go to Dean Ornish. Okay. We go to John McDougall, Neil Barnard. Forget about that. Those guys are just the beginning. John McDougall is not really a particular researcher of his own right. He's done a little bit, but he's a synthesizer. He's a he's an expert in the research itself. Okay, he's a, effectively a reviewer. That's what that's what he is. And so when you read those works, if you've read it, uh, uh, Collins' works, you recognize, oh my God, what an unbelievable a synthesis of thousands of studies. That's what Robert Plowman is. Robert Plowman is the Pope of personality. And like the Pope, uh, what a good Pope does is they sometimes have to guide the flock towards a, uh, a, a better way of looking at things, uh, but they have to do so gently and try to not ruffle too many feathers. Robert Plowman has great patience by nature. And so he is our Pope. He is trying to educate people as to the true nature of human development. That's what he he didn't he had no idea when he started out what the truth is. You know, a great man once said the following. And I we could look up the quote, I don't know who it was, Herbert Spencer or somebody like this out of the 19th century. And that is that if we begin with certainties, we will end with doubts. But if we begin with doubts, we will end with certainties. The, the people that begin with a theory that trauma is causing all the problems, you know, tra tra traumatic childhoods are causing the problems that you see in adulthood, they are beginning with certainties and they are ending with doubts, okay? Because you cannot jive that with the actual scientific evidence. Robert Plumman began with doubts, like a good scientist, unlike Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was not a scientist. He was a clinician theorist and he made up his ideas and he never once investigated them. Robert Clement spent his career investigating exactly those kinds of theories because that's what he thought was probably true. Okay. And it turned out that over the next 50 years, he found out that he and everybody else was mistaken and that it turned out that reality was different than we thought. And now he's certain. Okay. He began with doubts and ends with certainties. That's the process of doing science properly. All right. So that's the, the answer to that question. Well, as I'm sure you know, this upsets a lot of people because if you believe the world is flat, you don't like to be told that it's round, even if it is. Right. And, you know, notice how upsetting this is. In other words, it's because that we uh, there's a process of there's many reasons why this would be upsetting, but one of the reasons is, is that we are essentially saying the difficulties that people are having are not to be blamed from somebody else. There's a different process there. And uh, there's, also, there's also another angle to this, and this is why this was like a complicated physics problem, that when you say what I'm saying, which is true, you essentially are taking away that person's right to make claims on the village that they have been mistreated and therefore they are due compensation. Okay. So there is a, there is a, um, 
there is an insurance claim process in the Stone Age village that says, if I've been treated wrongly, the village now has to make it up to me. That is very reasonable as part of a human insurance scheme. And so if you start to tell people, no, this talk that you're doing about trauma, the reason why you're struggling now, 37 years old in your relationships, this is not because of things that have been done wrong to you. What you're hearing is from some therapists, from what I call trauma-mongering psychodynamic therapy, that they will be told that they are in fact due, that the world has in fact treated you wrongly, and this is why you have all the troubles that you have, and that you are in some fashion due compensation as a result of having been a victim, okay? So when I start to say, no, actually that is not, you know, you may have been a victim and you may have suffered in your past, and you may have little flags in your head to remind you of the little uh, narrow issues in life that you, you need to look out for because you've, you've stepped in some crap and people put some crap on you. In other words, so things have happened, uh, but they are not actually the cause of the difficulties that you are having today. Okay? And there will be no compensation due. There's nobody that's going to write you a check or give you a free pass on anything that, you know, if you're late to work and you're a flake and you say, well, it's because I was in childhood when I, you know, I was abused on my way to school by my mother in the car. So I don't like to get to places on time. Uh-uh. The world is not going to give you a break. The world is going to fire you unless you get to work on time. And the reason you're not getting to work on time has absolutely nothing to do with what happened in your childhood. It has to do with your personality the cost-benefit analysis that you're running in the situation that you're in, okay? So yes, it makes people upset to have this compensation rug pulled out from under them. They don't like that, okay? I can understand why. You've been told that you are due compensation. You've been told that the reasons why you're struggling are for things that happened in your past and that essentially you're a victim and people did bad things to you and that's why you're having the troubles that you're having. I'm saying no. There's a, actually a very, very different vision here, potentially one that's much more hopeful, okay? Uh, maybe not more hopeful. Maybe you're stuck with, with uh, the situation as it is because of your genetic code and your personality, but you might not be. You may have been walking down the wrong road looking for the solutions to the problems that you're having, thinking that, it, it, that we need to excavate the past and somehow get justice out of it. You do not, okay? If your problems are solvable, they are solvable in you becoming more confident to deal with the competitive realities of your present, okay? If you do deal with the competitive realities of your present by taking responsibility or competing with other people in these ecological niches of mates, friends, and trade, if you do that, then you will have greater success and then you won't feel the, the frustration of feeling like you've been handicapped by trauma, okay? so you'll have success and then you'll enjoy that success. So, so in one way, it's more hopeful. In another way, it may be not hopeful because maybe you can't, but in any event, the reason why you're having the competitive struggles you're having is not because you were traumatized. That is an unbelievably important message and all of the legitimate scientific evidence supports that position. And so that, that is the, uh, story and that is a major major component of the book that we are writing and now people see why it's taken a long time 
because it involves <laughs> complicated arguments. Okay, and a, essentially a cinemascope view of human nature and its struggles that is difficult to articulate in a way that's readable and understandable. Fortunately, I have as my co-author a, a, a tremendous authority on trauma, Dr. Jen Hawk, who studied nothing but trauma for her, for her extraordinary doctoral dissertation out of Harvard University. So for 10 years, Jen Hawk uh, basically did nothing else than think through and research uh, the trauma literature and synthesize that in a really exceptional doctoral dissertation. So that's who my co-author is, and I couldn't do it without it. Great. Well, thanks, Dr. Lyle. I know we've gone over, and I'm sure you want to end, but I, I go on if you do. But there's one real quick question. Yeah. A live viewer is saying, is there a book you could recommend for an educated layman to learn about evolutionary psychology? I would suggest your podcast is a great place. Um, a, a, a great book that was written, gosh, amazing, well, 30 years ago. Uh, so it is still really good. Is called The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. So even though I, uh, a testimony of the accuracy of this vision is just like reading the McDougall plan that was written in, I think, 83. If you go down and, and read the McDougall plan from 83, it's right on target today. There's very little that you would change in that book and it stands up perfectly to time because the truth never changes. Robert White wrote a similar type of book in 1993 called The Moral Animal. It's a, it's a beautiful, and the, the subtitle is, uh, I think, Why We Are the Way We Are, The New Science of Evolutionary Psychology. Well, that new science is now 30 years old. Uh, that science was basically born in about 1992. And so 30 years later, the, uh, the conclusions that Robert Wright reaches, I would go back through and circle about 15 little things and correct him. And I would, uh, I would put a bunch of little stuff in there that he couldn't have possibly known and nobody knew in 1992. But boy, does that book stand up well, okay? The, uh, it, uh, if you wanna read a book about modern human life and human behavior and uh, evolutionary psychology, a striking book is called Spent by Jeffrey Miller. It tells about why people spend money where they spend it and why they do the things that they do. And he it, uh, and it has, it has a, like a chimpanzee on the cover going to the mall with a shopping cart or whatever. It, uh, it, it is an extraordinary uh, explanation of personality because in there, the big five is covered uh, beautifully, basically telling the story of human evolution and why people are doing the things with their time and energy and money the way they are doing them. And uh, so that that is a much more modern book uh, than the moral animal, but for an introductory for the wide scope, uh, the moral animal is the is the best book that I've seen. Great, thanks, Dr. Lyle. I look forward to you coming back next month, and we'll stay away from childhood trauma and looks. <laughs> no, both those categories seem to be very triggering to a lot of people. And notice America. how interested people are in them because they are so central and important to a lot of people's decisions, and they're trying to figure it out. So these are great questions. The, the questioner asks a great question. They're obviously paying attention and they're trying to figure it out. You've got a Robert Plumman on the one side and everybody else screaming on the other. What's all the fuss about, okay? 
And uh, the same thing is true of looks. You got people screaming that it's all subjective, et cetera. And the other people saying, hey, listen, we all know that's not true. We see how unbelievably important it is in human affairs. So this is why, you know, you know, evolutionary psychology sits right where it's super uncomfortable for people. It sits right in the nature of the competitive realities that, that human beings face every day of their lives. And uh, many, many people have told me, you know, I'm glad I know, but it's not all pleasant. You know, and that that is true. Uh, that you know, evolutionary psychology is is kind of like uh, it's kind of like going into a really messy garage and going in there for four hours that you haven't faced and and recognizing uh, it's a mess in here. But at least now I know what the mess looks like. And that's that's kind of what this is. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Lyle, the people that are your most vehement opponents will not even read the book. Yes. There you go. People that are most vehement paleo people don't want to read Colin Campbell. Like they, they, they don't actually want to read the China study and, and get down through chapter and verse what a protein is, what we need and why we don't need it from animals. Now, they, they, it's like this. OK, so, yeah, I understand. And that's what you're watching is informational immune defense. So sometimes uh, this is part of human nature and I'm not I'm not immune to it. I'm sure I'm sure there's things that that I'm like that about that not in my own field. Yeah. When I was on the debate team in college, they said you have to know the other person's argument better than yourself. And that's why I don't understand why they won't at least look at the research before they uh, criticize you for promoting it. Yeah, that's uh, it's okay. I I know these are these are some of the the most disturbing truths that there are in life. Uh, Jeffrey Miller, the, the brilliant evolutionary psychologist, who wrote Spent and he wrote uh, The Mating Mind. He's a, he's an extraordinary thinker. He in The Mating Mind he actually has a section in about about page fifty where he lists all of the things that are really, really disturbing to people about evolutionary psychology uh, and about the nature of genetic fitness and competition. And he basically says, isn't this extraordinary that this position finds itself on the wrong end of every moral prescription for humanity? Eight of them, he counted. Nobody wants to hear about how beauty's got objectivity to it. Nobody wants to hear, you know, uh, uh, about uh, uh, genetics and personality. Nobody, like one thing after the next, he talks about this and he says, this is not an accident. Uh, it can't possibly be that one position could be so infuriating and upsetting to, to so many people, to, it, to human sensibility writ large. The answer is we're right down to the nuts and bolts of competition and people don't like it. Okay, they don't like it. They want to, they want to, it, it's uncouth to point these things out and to be so brutal that it's literally, quote, inhumane. And that's how people will feel when we start attacking some of these things that are critical, you know, they're, they're critical negotiating positions for, for latitude. You know, if I've been traumatized, I get latitude. You know, I, I get concessions. You need to be nicer to me. Things need to be more fair. We need to even it out. There needs to be reparations. That's the going, what's going on here. Okay. The uh, if if trauma theory were true, and just by listening to this and 
and being helpful and then making reparations, we would get rid of all the problems, right? Well, that hasn't worked in 100 years, folks. Psychodynamic psychotherapy is one great, big, total abject failure. Okay, so we know that all the research evidence indicates that all of it. So no, that's that's not how how it works. So yes, this is unpleasant, and I know it's unpleasant, and I'm not as I'm not as smooth as Robert Plumman. <laughs> well, as Jack Nicholson said in a few good men, you can't handle the truth. Sometimes the truth, and you know what? I'm very understanding that there's truths that are difficult. They are they are bitter. You know what I'm saying, and uh, and I and this is you know this is sorry we, we with the truth we have the chance to do some good. Without the truth, we're going to be lost. Well, that is what I like most about you and Dr. Goldhammer because you both speak your truth as best we can. We're trying to tell it as straight as we can figure out. Not that we might not make mistakes, but we're but we are honest. We are trying our very very best to give you. We say it actually in the dedication to the pleasure trap. If we looked on the dedication, dedicated to the heroes of science, religion, uh, medicine, uh, and whatever it is, I can't remember what the, the, the fourth thing is, who are uh, uh, you know, who have endeavored to discover and to tell the truth about human happiness. In other words, that's all we can do is we can endeavor to discover and to tell the truth. We might not necessarily find it, but we're going to try. Yeah. And you both have helped a lot of people. For those that don't resonate, just try keto. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Lyle. Take care. And Have thanks you. all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when, oh my God, and who is my guest? Janie Goddard for Rewinding Your Body Clock. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.